Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Red Army soldiers went to war with a lot of stuff. Military-issued knapsacks, food, spoons, shovels, weapons, and also personal stuff, letters, religious icons, and photographs, and much, much more. We tend to take all these little things for granted when we think of war, killing, and survival. My guest, Brandon Schechter, examines all these little objects to tell a fascinating story about the Red Army soldier in World War II. These things, from spoons to tanks, show how a wide array of citizens became soldiers, and how the provisioning of material goods separated soldiers from citizens. In the end, he shows that spoons, shovels, belts, and watches held as much meaning to the waging of war as guns and tanks. Brandon Schechter is a visiting assistant professor of history at Columbia University. He's the author of The Stuff of Soldiers, A History of the Red Army in World War II Through Objects, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Brandon Schechter. Uh, I thought we'd start by just having you uh, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, my name is Brandon Schechter. Uh, I'm a cultural historian of the Soviet Union, specializing in the creation of meaning in times of crisis. Uh, most of my research is on the Red Army during the Second World War. And uh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I, what do you, what do you, I'm so actually surprised you, you um, see yourself as a cultural historian, because in reading your book, um, and I'll just state the title now, The Stuff of Soldiers, A History of the Red Army in World War II Through Objects, I found it a per, more a, a social history in many aspects. Well, I, I use the term cultural history largely because when I think of social history, I often think of the Annals School, where there's a lot of you know counting and kind of economic history going on. So I, um, to free myself from having to do much, qual- much uh, quantitative work, I refer to myself as a cultural historian. Ah, I see. Because, you know, like the the type of social history that I'm, of course, thinking of is, you know, what comes out of somebody like E.P. Thompson. In, in the sense of like, you know, the reason why I say it, it's to me, it reads more like a social history is because you're telling about, you know, people's social situation in situations of experience, right? Um, and less in terms of, uh, you know, like the, what what a lot of cultural analysis does in terms of discourses or representation and things like this. And and I was consciously channeling works like uh, you know 
pe- peasants and the Frenchmen, the making of the English working class, uh, beyond nationalism, when I came to this project. Um, but for whatever reason, I, whenever I think of social history, I think more of work like by Donald Filzer or historians who are really using numbers to tell a story and demographics to tell a story in a way that I'm just not um, really trained to do. And, and it's not the way that I do history, although I have immense respect for people who can tell stories through numbers and demographics and so on and so forth. Um, so let's let's talk about this this book of yours, The Stuff of Soldiers, A History of the Red Army in World War II Through Objects. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating way to look at the experience of war. Uh, how did you get interested in this topic? Way, way back, um, I was going to do a project on on the memory of the war. And then I realized I wanted to deal with something that was going to be much more uh, visceral and much more kind of embodied and much more directly into people's experiences. When I initially started grad school, I was going to do a project on the uh, what are what are referred to as the non-Russians, Neruski, which was kind of a catch-all term for non-Slavic and usually non-Jewish soldiers in the Red Army. Uh, and as I embarked on that project, I ran into a couple major issues. Uh, one is that I did not want to learn 15 more Soviet languages to be able to get at the experience of all these different types of people. Uh, two is that the main archive I would want to look at, the Central Archive of the Ministry of Defense, is not really open. Um, and then three, as I began to learn Tatar, um, as, as part of this project, I began to see that, it, that a lot of the people who bothered to write memoirs were writing memoirs that sounded a lot like Russian language memoirs. They were, it was essentially a lot of the same tropes just in Tatar instead of in Russian. Um, so gradually I, I began to shift to what was always going to be part of that project was going to be about bit, was going to be about everyday life and using that as a way to look at what this everyday life is like for Russian soldiers and non-Russian soldiers and, and why that might be important. And as you can probably see by reading the book, the, the non-Russians have stayed in as a, as a major backbone of the book. I'm very interested. Is one of the, you know, I have two, two types of voices I'm particularly interested in, uh, one being the Neruski, the non-Russians, uh, the other being the voices of women in the army. And the the logic there is that the group of people who are the, the groups of people who are non-standard highlight how different being in the army was for absolutely everyone in even greater relief. So, but what brought you to what brought you to the 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 looking stuff at itself. yeah stuff itself exactly? I mean, like I said, I think this is really unique because I think a lot of and and I I thought about this when I was reading the book. You you focus in on a lot of things that we and both historians but also readers kind of take for granted in terms of like uniforms or the shovel and these little things that you you highlight as incredibly precious and important items in the war experience um so i felt that that it was a it was a wonderful window to look at that experience through these things that like i said we take for granted well, thank you. Um, there's a there's a couple of reasons I came to stuff. One is that just as a as a student, and then later as a a, a graduate student in St. Petersburg, I used to love going to flea markets, and I was just fascinated by the by this kind of detritus of the Soviet period that you could look at and acquire. 
And so before I became a historian, I was a, a bit of a collector. I particularly collected spoons from the 30s and 40s. Um, so I was, I was really, and as, if anyone who reads the book will see that spoons are one of the most important objects that I talk about and think about. I used to frame a lot of things. Um, so I was just interested in stuff as a, before I was a historian, I was just interested in stuff because I was interested in stuff. And as I was framing a, a project in my PhD program, I was thinking increasingly about how do I tell a story that will highlight both the epic aspects of this and the quotidian aspects of this? How do I tell a story that really, really humanizes my subjects in a way that makes them relatable, but also points out just how, how different their material world was and the consequences of that? And how do we show, you know, that I would argue in any in any in any military, this is the case in a socialist dictatorship. This is even more so the case that material objects make rhetoric physical. They make rhetoric material. Right. The soldier can feel that they're not getting enough food, can feel that they're not being clothed warmly enough, can feel and can witness the what happens when they are not provided with weapons, ammunition, shovels, so on and so forth. So in any army, and in particularly a socialist dictatorship, that one of its main forms of rule is distribution of scarce resources, uh, looking at material culture ends up being, I think, a very useful way to look at what's going on. And, you know, you could, there, if, you could do a similar project, and it would be interesting in different ways with the U.S. Army, because you have a capitalist society, and then you have branding, and, you know, they're getting rations, but they're getting rations that are branded. Right. They're getting rations that say like Hormel Corporation or say Chesterfield or Camel or what have you. As opposed to, you know, a socialist dictatorship where there's no need to really label much of anything because there's not they're not trying to sell something to people after the war. So the other thing I, that struck me, too, um, is that also and this is relation to the stuff is the, the the organization of the book. Now, it's thematic, but it's not th haphazardly thematic because the way I read it is that, you know, you start with the body, the, the physical object of the soldier, and it kind of moves out in these interesting layers from, you know, the clothes to what they're carrying, uh, and then to this, this at the end, it's this their own kind of personal objects and what they take with them and what the meaning of that. Uh, so I found that the organization, uh, an interesting movement itself through the various layers of things. Talk about the organization of, of the book and, and, and the way you, uh, you unfold these various layers of, of the soldier stuff. So a lot of books about war are written in the chronology events of, of the war itself and they try to stick in various thematic elements as the events are developing. I find that to be often very frustrating. Um, so what I decided to do is do things in roughly the order that a soldier would encounter various objects. And, you know, that's not always perfect, but I start off with the soldier's body being taken possession by the state. Uh, the soldier, I argue that the soldier becomes, the soldier's body becomes an object that is used by the state in various ways. That and that chapter begins and ends with soldiers being naked, basically. Um, and the second chapter dresses the soldier, so I talk about uniforms. The third chapter feeds the soldier, 
And then I have a, so the first chapter, the first section of the book, these first three chapters is called Mortal Envelopes. It's about everything to do with the body itself. Uh, the second section is about violence. And I do something slightly artificial here in that I separate not getting killed from the act of killing. I have a chapter that is about the soldier's spade and the trenches that soldiers build and, and basically surviving in the deadly environment of the front, which um, probably most soldiers encountered trenches before they actually fired their weapon. They actually got their weapon first. But in terms of actually the actual process, that, that tends to generally be how things seem to have worked out. Uh, then chapter five is about soldiers' weapons, their relationship with their weapons, these weapons as tools, the corporate cultures that emerge around the use of different weapons. Uh, and then finally, the third section, chapters six and seven, are on, uh, is called possessions. And chapter six is about the soldier's knapsack and the types of things that they would find that you would find inside a soldier's knapsack. How basically, with very little space to carry stuff and everything that they carry having to weigh down on them how these soldiers try to create some sort of sense of self in these incredibly nomadic lives they're living. And then finally, chapter seven is about trophies. Um, and so each, almost every chapter has a kind of a 1941 to 1945 story in it, but some chapters are more heavily weighted in some time periods than other. Uh, chapter seven is really heavily weighted in 1945. Um, and I mean, we, can, we can talk more about that in, in a moment. Um, but one of the things that also this organization is con consciously about is, um, this book can be parceled out to different groups of people, to different types of scholars, uh, who might be interested in the history of the body, the history of food, uh, the history of travel, uh, the history of cities, you know, they, there's, I'm, I'm trying to give something for, for everybody while also having kind of like a, a whole that is greater than its parts, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's start to talk about some of these things in more detail, and and of course, starting with the soldier's body, and and this is a this is a fascinating thing because as you point out, is you know the the Red Army at this point is an incredibly diverse um, body. Uh, there's there, and it's a mostly peasant um, force, um, and one of the tasks of the state is to essentially mold these people in a very physical way into soldiers. So t talk about the the place of the body in this process and the transformation that it that it um, that it undergoes. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that I that I argue here, and I occasionally get pushback on this, is that the the soldier's body becomes an object of the state through various means. I mean, one one thing that would have been just kind of ritualistically and very just physically clear is that the vast majority of people who come into the army have their heads shaved and will exchange their civilian clothing, whatever that civilian clothing was, uh, for military clothing very early in their service. So just this sense of everybody looking the same, everybody suddenly being uniform. And they're subjected to a very harsh code of discipline uh, in which, you know, we oftentimes when I'm presenting on this, people mention, well, you know, the Soviet Union was a, was a state that used violence quite a bit. There's quite a bit of, there's, there's intense labor discipline laws, so on and so forth in the red army itself. You know, you can, you can legally be executed for things like falling asleep while on guard duty for self mutilation. Your commander can legally order you to crawl across a minefield and refusing that order is something that you can be executed for. So we're talking about orders of magnitude higher in terms of the, the amount of control 
that the state has invested uh, commanders in the Red Army with over their subordinates. This sometimes this for women leads to particular problems in that it's really unclear to many commanders and to many women themselves if they have a legal right to refuse sexual advances by their commanders, uh, because there's this idea that the commander's the commander's word is law. So it's really in this in this gray area, and in some ways is never really resolved during the war. Uh, another reason why it's particularly interesting to look at women they they're kind of the limit case for the state and the commander's control over people's bodies. And finally, you know, one of the one of the things that I discovered that I think was particularly interesting is. The Red Army starts off the war with no unified document to document living soldiers. It has unified documents to document the dead. It has a little, basically two pieces of newsprint that are in a Bakelite case. There are various types of dog tags that you can see being used, but there's not like one uniform thing for the entire Red Army until uh, the fall of 1941, in which case they established the Red Army booklet, which is a lot like it's a militarized version, essentially, of the Soviet passport. And this turns the soldier's biography into a text that is essentially the stuff a commander would need to know to effectively use this soldier. And it's an interesting document because it talks about education, specialization, blood type, next of kin. There's no actual place for class in this document, although there is place for nationality. Uh, and it, it shows a reorientation by this by the soviet state of its goals and of its priorities during the war itself uh something that i talk about a little bit elsewhere and i've actually talking about another work i'm working on right now so can you put this 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 trend the role of the basically the how the soldier's body becomes the property of the state and basically the state is sovereign over that body in a variety of intimate ways. Can you put this in a, in a larger context of other militaries at the time? Sure. Sure. So this is, again, this is a universal story. Any, any military does this. And what I think is particularly interesting and what, why, why I think, you know, the red, what I think makes the red army different, um, is that the Red Army is a much more diverse body for a much longer period of time than most other militaries are, uh, in that it's drafting people from an age range that goes from 17 into the 50s. It's it's mobilizing both men and women, and it's mobilizing almost all of the nationalities in the Soviet Union. It's also mobilizing large numbers of criminals into the into the military, um, basically commuting their sentences if they serve at the front. So it's a much more diverse body. And it also has a probably the harshest discipline of any military during the war. Um, they, they execute orders of magnitude, larger numbers of soldiers than, than the Germans and just ridiculously larger numbers of soldiers than the Americans, for example. Um, so they are in, in, in many ways often I would say that the exercise of power in the Soviet Union is much more naked than it is in a lot of other regimes. So you see things that everyone else is doing just in, in sharper relief. And I think the Red Army is no exception in that. And how do you and how do you explain this this intensity and particularly the use of violence? Is this something that is a response to the nature of 
this particular conflict and the fact that the Soviet Union at the, from the very beginning uh, is quite, you know, almost destroyed? Uh, or does this go to kind of deeper historical and and cultural developments and ideological developments out of the way the Red Army was built? It's it's both. I mean, we we can see that the the Bolsheviks are very comfortable with the use of force from the very inception of the Red Army. Uh, we can see that they have an idea that a small number of purely highly motivated people is always going to be better than large numbers of people in theory, although in practice they're always they, they always win by mobilizing very, very large numbers of people. Uh, so they have this kind of interesting theory versus practice disconnect there. Uh, but I think that probably more important than anything else is the fact that from the very beginning of the war, it's an existential crisis and is clear that if they're going to lose this war, everything is going to be lost. So they will, will use force in, in ways that other armies, I mean, it, if you were to compare the, the Germans in 1945 with the, with the Red Army in 1941, that's not that different. It's just a matter of the Germans have already basically run through all their resources, so it looks absolutely hopeless. But for many people in 1941, everything looked absolutely hopeless from the Soviet side. So the 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 body becomes the soldier's body becomes the property and and basically the the object of the state. It becomes an object itself, and then of course the state has to provision this body to to be able to survive and 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 also kill. Um, and so talk about what are the um, how do, how did soldiers relate to the variety of things that the state provided them, whether it be uniforms or food provisions and, and other items? So there's a there's a wide variety of responses to, you know, there's a wide variety of objects as well. So I, there are certain things that soldiers uh, love and value and speak highly of, you know, in their memoirs after the war, during the war. Um, there are certain changes that take place that, that soldiers are highly enthusiastic about, others are less enthusiastic about. And then there are certain things that large numbers of soldiers just dispose with. And one of the things that came quite interesting in this project is we often think about the Soviet Union as this totalitarian regime that is attempting to have total control over its citizens. And, or at least often posed that way by scholars. And what's interesting is that in the Red Army, which, as we've just talked about, is willing to execute very large numbers of soldiers, they have an incredible problem with soldiers throwing away significant parts of their equipment. Um, they throw away, often they throw away gas masks um, and use the gas mask bag as just carry whatever they want. They often throw away bayonets because they find them to be useless and just don't want them. And they often throw away helmets because they find them to be uncomfortable. And with helmets, there's an interesting story in that there's various points in the war where the Soviet government offers bounties to civilians for collecting and returning Red Army helmets to, to the military in areas that battles have taken place. Um, so even in this regime that has, has this incredibly stark discipline, soldiers do what soldiers in many militaries do, which is just get rid of anything extra, any extra weight, anything they don't see to be particularly useful. And in the case of bayonets, this has an interesting effect in which 
1944, the Red Army redesigns its primary fighting weapon. It goes from a rifle to a carbine, so it shortens this weapon a little bit so it's easier to carry. And it creates a bayonet that cannot be taken off without a special tool. So it, it, it actually, the, these soldiers have such an impact on the state and what it's doing that the primary weapon being issued to the Red Army is changed because, you know, these peasant guys are doing what, what peasant guys do. Right, right. Um, I, now that I know about your, your interest in the spoon, um, to talk about the spoon and the importance of this. I mean, you said it was one of the, the most important objects a soldier could have. The soldier's spoon was an object that I became interested in even before I started doing this project. Um, in that I already knew, you know, just from, from reading lots of memoirs and diaries and such, that it is the, really the only th- state-sanctioned thing that a soldier owns. Uh, when people were mobilized in the Red Army, they would often get a little piece of paper that had, like, come with, you know, change of underwear, a backpack if you have it, um, a spoon. Sometimes they they tell people to bring a cup. So, you know, the, the spoon becomes the sanctioned object that a soldier is supposed to have. Whenever there are shortages of spoons, the state is really, really nervous about it. And will sometimes there's, there's even accounts of frontline units finding guys who know how to carve wooden spoons, taking them from the front line and having them carve wooden spoons for soldiers who don't have it. Because everything that a Red Army soldier eats is designed to be eaten either with their hands or with spoons. So spoons will often have soldiers' initials, sometimes dates, uh, sometimes drawings. I've even run into uh, there's this kind of famous spoon that a lot of a lot of people are interested in the war have seen that um, it says uh, basically Ishimiasasuka. So it's an incantation, find meat, bitch. Um, so you know the idea that if if you write something like that on your spoon, you'll actually find the the chunks of meat that are in that are in the soup. Um, so it's it's a very important object, <clears throat> and it's an object that sometimes. Uh, as as I as I begin the ver- the book with, I don't want to completely give this story away, but the but the introduction of the book ends with um, a soldier giving his spoon to his wife and and a meditation on the fact that the spoon is used in moments when people understand that they're alive. Eating after battle is something that comes up in a lot of the memoir literature, in a lot of the autobiographical fiction. Um, that this is the moment when you take stock when you're when you're doing something that sustains you. Uh, and finally, spoons are sometimes used today when bodies are found as a way to help identify uh, unidentified Red Army soldiers, because the primary form of identification is a newsprint book that disintegrates in, almost invariably, unless there's some really extraordinary soil conditions. So soldiers' medals and spoons are often the, the only way to, the serial numbers on the medals or soldiers' spoons are often the only way to, to find who they are. When remains are unearthed today. This is Leah Goldman from Washington and Jefferson College, and you're listening to the SRB podcast. I listen because the interviews are engaging and insightful, and it's a great way to keep up on current scholarship.
the identification documents is also really a fast. I found it a fascinating thing because one, I was surprised that they they didn't do something similar to you know what I know in the American military is that a metal dog tag that's you know stamped, uh, so you it, the information on it is dif- more difficult to lose. Um, but I I was actually more fascinated by the fact that when they issued these little like little canisters with. Uh, little this newsprint in them identifying the soldier that a lot of soldiers threw them away. Yeah, they they called them death passports, and they thought if filled them out, then they would be then then they would totally then that like would guarantee their death. Some of them also supposedly feared reprisals against their family if those were found on their bodies, like that the Germans would then know where their families lived and that would be bad for their families as well. Right. Were there other objects that were considered like there was a superstition or taboo that soldiers would reject that they were provided? Um, from From the perspective of superstition or taboo, there were some soldiers who just would not take anything off of the battlefield or not take anything off of the dead because they had a superstition about that. Um, the death passport is the one thing in terms of, of actually getting rid of for that particular purpose. Um, a lot of soldiers carried some sort of talisman. This could take the form of a religious item like a cross or an obereg, which is basically a prayer, uh, wrapped, usually wrapped in leather, sometimes wrapped in wood, which is something very common among both, uh, Muslims and Christians in, in the Soviet Union. Um, some, but a lot of them just carried some sort of useless piece of junk that they believed would uh, would protect them. One of the guys who I follow, uh, Mansour Abdullin, talks about having this kind of like broken plexiglass um, cigarette holder that he knew was useless. He knew it was broken, but he knew he felt that as long as he had it in his pocket, he was he was going to live. And a lot of them, interestingly enough, there's like a special pocket in the pants for. The, for this uh, for this uh, death death passport, a lot of soldiers, when they threw away the death passport, would put whatever their lucky object is in that particular pocket. And there's a weird thing too, like that pocket for the de- for the um, death medallion death passport was kept on Soviet pants into the 60s or 70s. This is kind of like a, a legacy piece. They forgot to stop making the pants with that pocket, even though that pocket no longer had a function. Wow, that's that's incredibly fascinating. <laughs> I just the 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 yeah, I mean, because it just opens so many, so many things into the the mentality of a soldier and and the the need to survive to kind of cover all the bases, even though you know that you know this object is useless, but nonetheless, this is the object that is going to prevent you from dying. All right. Um. So the other object that uh, that I, I found really interesting because, like I said, you know, as historians and readers, we tend to take these things for granted. And that is the spade, which was referred to as the soldier's loyal friend. Um, so t- talk about this this spade and, and its importance for soldiers in trying to, you know, navigate uh, the battlefield. Yeah, so, you know, soldiers in the 20th century battlefield particularly just the, the most humble type of soldiers, infantrymen who are there just with a rifle and a shovel, a small shovel, um, find themselves in an utterly terrifying situation. The battlefield is now dominated by artillery, tanks, and planes, and automatic weapons. And the only thing that's going to keep these people alive is an incredible amount of labor 
done with this spade that is about a cubit's length. You know, a cubit is basically from your fingertips to your to your elbow, um, with which they have to create various types of shelter, not only from the all of these new types of technology that can kill them, but also from the elements. This is you know they're also dealing with snow and rain and mud and and all of that and incredible heat during the summer as well. So I was, I knew I was going to write a chapter that was going to be about, uh, the, the lived environment of soldiers. What I didn't anticipate is the extent to which this would be kind of a history of labor and highlighting the tremendous amount of labor. And I didn't initially understand that, um, these were actually urban environments and that these soldiers create environments that model Soviet cities that are built around some form of some form of production, whether it be, you know, a factory, a mine, whatever, in really interesting ways and in some ways fulfill the idea of these linear cities that had been very popular in the twenties and thirties in a way that the actual linear cities that are built in the Soviet Union do not. Um, in that they're supposed to be in these linear cities, right? There's supposed to be a living space and a working space separated by this green corridor, right? And what's interesting is that when the Red Army is building trenches, they actually do this quite successfully. Often in Soviet cities, that green corridor disappeared, and as the city was much more haphazard. In, I, and what I argue is that basically in the Red Army, in these trenches, you have the space of production, which is the space of fighting and killing. And then you have these bunkers that these soldiers build, which is the space of rest. And they actually keep a green corridor in there because they need to camouflage everything. Everything needs to be not only deep into the ground, but invisible to the enemy and an enemy who can watch from the sky, an enemy who can observe through binoculars, an enemy who is looking for any sign of life in order to destroy that life uh, from across no man's land or from the sky. So, you know, this, the, the, sol the basic rhythm of soldiers lives and it really doesn't matter which branch of service you were in uh is you stop somewhere you dig and it's kind of this endless process even even tank crews tank crews don't sleep in their tanks they sleep in this hole that they build under their tanks uh because tanks are freezing cold um and because they also need to kind of defend and scout out the tank regular soldiers anywhere they stop they start digging. They're supposed to have a, a, a basically a hole that they can stand up in within an hour of stopping in any place. And as you might imagine, lots of soldiers kind of, after they've done this several times, really don't want to start digging everywhere they stop. They figure, oh, we're going to move soon. And, and this discipline of, okay, guys, you either dig in now or the Germans are going to come and they're going to kill us all. And constantly reminding soldiers that the, that the labor that they're doing is necessary to keeping them alive is a big part of what they do. And that's is a big part of what political workers do in the Red Army. And, you know, they, so they'll do things like they'll find soldiers who, who were lazy and didn't build a, a deep enough bunker or deep enough trench. And ones who are killed by the enemy, they'll use their corpses as kind of as what they refer to as Nagliatnaya Agitatsiya. So as kind of like visual agitation, or they'll do things like they'll say, you know, uh, you know, Rido Ivanov, get out of that hole. I'm going to show you that I can put a bullet through what you just dug. And they're like, oh, yeah, OK, I would be dead. All right, I'll get, I'll get on that. Um, so constantly convincing soldiers that 
the tremendous amount of work that the war requires of them is actually worth it is is part of this story. I, I found it fascinating, interesting that you referred to the the killing aspect as production. So uh, let's let's turn to that because I I actually found it um, somewhat. I don't know if this is the right word, but I found it somewhat refreshing that you spoke about the killing and not necessarily about surviving or not being killed. Um, so how do you how do you talk about the relationship between violence and and killing and it, their relationship to the objects of soldiers? So, you know, I mean, the, the central reason that they're mobilizing all these people is to defend the state. And the main, re- the main means by which to defend the state in time of war is by killing its enemies, right? So everything in the soldier's world is built around either killing or not getting killed. And what I mean by this is that, you know, this is a period of dramatic shortage of everything. Soldiers and factory workers who are in in munitions production or military production are at the top of rationing, right? They're they're getting much more food than everybody else. Um, Soldiers are getting much more clothing than everybody else. There's essentially very little civilian, there's virtually no civilian clothing production during the war to prioritize soldiers. Um, There is a dramatic reduction in the amount of tobacco produced in the Soviet Union, about 25% of pre-war norms. The military is getting you know, is getting that. So they're getting more stuff, more of everything, both, both basic necessities and luxuries than everybody else, because their, their contribution to killing the enemy is what's keeping the state and, and, and its citizens alive. So, you know, I have, I constantly come back to this and the two objects that are probably the most, or the two genres of objects that are probably the most important to talk about when we talk about violence, when we talk about killing in the Red Army, are weapons and metals. And I'll start with weapons, and then I'll move on to metals. Um, so the Soviets have a long-standing, at least decade-long trope of man merging with machine that comes at least, it go, that goes back at least the first five-year plan, right? This is one of the ways to become a full Soviet person is by your merging with with the machinery that you use, mastering that machinery. This is, this is something that they've been doing. The idea of yesterday's peasants, yesterday's non-professional workers becoming workers who are capable of superhuman feats is, a, is an incredibly important trope of the five-year plan. And they mobile, they just kind of militarize these tropes. Instead of learning how to use a lathe, you're learning how to use a machine gun or a rifle or an artillery piece. Um, and they actually refer to certain, they actually have things like socialist competitions between either snipers or like an artillery battery. They might have a socialist competition. They refer to snipers as the shock workers of the front. They are upset. They, they treat the production of dead Germans in a way that, is very similar to production of steel or fabric or whatever during the war. They don't set norms, but they do celebrate killing in a variety of ways. Um, they, they will publicize people who are successful killers in, in local news, in their, in the, in their local unit newspaper. Uh, and in addition to that, they shame people who fail to properly inflict violence on the enemy. And this idea of learning and self-improvement during the war becomes centered on military skills, becomes centered on 
knowing how to dig a trench, knowing how to use your weapon effectively, knowing how to camouflage yourself, so on and so forth. And one of the most dramatic ways and, and obvious ways that this expresses itself is through the wide variety of medals that are developed during the war, decorations that are developed during the war, that are given out uh, ostensibly and usually for successful killing. So there were a series of medals that existed before the war that people could win uh, for various feats of labor, feats of bravery, so on and so forth. And during the war, this expands dramatically. Um, the number of medals, and, and many of which are medals that could only be won during the war, also marking the war itself as, a, as an event of, of particular historic significance. And many of these medals also, interestingly enough, have uh, either take the names of old regime heroes or are specifically modeled after old regime medals um, and, and are hearkening back to this, this trope increasingly during the war that the Red Army is the inheritor of all the military glory of all previous Russian armies, that there is something good to be inherited from the old regime which is in stark contrast to, like, let's say, the first five-year plan when they're constantly talking about we're the youngest country on earth, this is an exciting new place. Here the trope increasingly becomes there were good things about the old regime and what the revolution did is it unleashed everyone's potential. But we should celebrate people like Suvorov, Kutuzov, so on, Alexander Nevsky, so on and so forth. Um, and these guys all have medals named after them during the war. And these, these medals come with one one thing that's and this is unique to the Red Army, uh, well, more or less unique to the Red Army. The Germans do something somewhat similar. Is that Red Army soldiers actually wear their medals like almost all the time? Like they're wearing them in combat, and this turns a Red Army soldier's uniform into a text that is readable by everybody. Because every time they come up with a new with a new medal, there'll be an article on Izvestia or Pravda and also local unit newspapers that will explain this is what this medal is. These are the types of things you would have to do to get this medal. Oh, and here are the monetary benefits of having this medal. They usually came with a, not some, not, not like huge, but somewhat of a in, increase in um, monthly wages. They usually came, and, and some of the higher ranking ones would come with things like uh, free use of public transport in, in various Soviet cities, reduction of time to pension, free education for children, and the highest level ones would come with a once a year free trip to anywhere to and from anywhere in the Soviet Union. You know, as as you were talking in terms of in this putting this into the production process, but also the rewards of production, because these medals also sound like the type of awards that you got in during the first five year plan is in during the five year plan as well. Um, what is the relationship to this killing as production to the harsh treatment? Uh, including execution of deserters or people who are captured? The Red Army has very, very high standards. Uh, you know, there's, that, there's always that, that joke that supposedly someone overheard Stalin say it's a, it takes a very brave man to be a coward in the Red Army. So they have these tremendous standards that you have to live up to. Uh, and and they, they talk over and over again about how we reward and look at it. We will reward you we will reward your family with a pension and taking care of them should you be killed if you live up to that standard and you are a full-fledged member of the Soviet community. Should you fail to live up to that standard, 
not only will you be punished, but your family will be punished in that. So, and then this is one of the reasons why next of kin is in the, the red army booklet. There's a punitive aspect to this as well, because if you are executed, uh, for desertion, cowardice in the red army, your family is not going to get a pension. Your family is going to lose all benefits. And sometimes this will, this will come also with the confiscation of property. So potentially your family could lose its apartment. And I've actually run across documents, um, where basically a family is petitioning that, you know, the, the, the father who had been executed for cowardice at the front had already left the family before the war and they had already cut, set, cut ties with the family before the war. Therefore they should not lose their housing. Um, so, I mean, this is a, this is a, a real issue that, that people are facing. Um, so, you know, the, this is, this is a classic Soviet form of rule, lavishly reward the people who, who show the superhuman potential that the Soviet regime has unleashed and punish and physically destroy those people who fail to live up to that standard and conspicuously fail to live up to that standard. And, and, and I, I, I also am struck by the role of stuff in it, in the sense that if you perform that, you get stuff. And if you don't, you are, or your family members are denied that stuff. Um, it's, it's a very interesting, this whole narrative of production and consumption and access seems to kind of be one of the threads that runs throughout this. Talk about personal items. What, what did soldiers bring with them from home and what kinds of things that they cherish? Yeah. So, um, I have this, this chapter that's really a grab bag, which is about soldiers, personal items in which, uh, again, the 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 challenge is is that you as a red army soldier have almost no space in your pockets and backpack that is not taken up by government issued goods that you have to carry whether it's your food your shelter your change of underwear whatever so how do you create a sense of self and maintain a sense of self with that tiny amount of space and what kind of objects end up occupying that and what i found is um there's two genres of objects that are particularly important to soldiers. Uh, one is universal and obvious. This is letters. And I'll, um, if, if you would like, we can talk more about letters in, in a little bit. Um, but I want to first talk about the, the less obvious and much more varied genre of just whatever knickknacks soldiers happened to pick up or take with them from home. So this varies from person to person. Um, I follow relatively closely uh, two men who are separated from, well, one separated from his mistress, the other separated from his wife, and the stuff that they bring with them. So one of them has a knife and a comb that his wife gave him that he didn't want to take with him, but that he ends up writing about with some frequency to his wife and talks about every time he, one, it's, they were both super useful. Uh, and he's glad he has them and that every time he uses them, he thinks of her and, and this is probably the most touching aspect of this. He promises to bring them back. I.e. he promises to survive the war. So these, these objects that are really mundane objects are, have this emotional charge that they otherwise wouldn't have. The guy who's separated from his mistress, um, he's a higher ranking officer and he brings plates and silverware from Moscow that she had given him. And talks about how three times a day when he eats, he imagines that he's there with her. 
Um, some of the other objects that soldiers valued that like these these guys the, the two guys who I just discussed are both officers. So some of the more humble soldiers um, talk about valuing things like uh, the cassette or the tobacco pouch that was pretty much every soldier has. Because um, pretty much you know the vast majority of soldiers smoke. It's the it's the 40s. The vast majority of people in you know Europe smoke at that time. Um, and so a lot of them are really just given out as as generic gifts from whoever to whoever, often with embroidery. Um, and there's one story that's quite interesting about um, that, that I relate in the book that is about this guy who was a career criminal who gets one of these just kind of he gets one of these tobacco pouches randomly. And he becomes obsessed with trying to figure out who is the person who gave it to him. And he, it, it becomes like this quest in his life to figure, to find the anonymous person who, who gave him this pouch. And it's this interesting thing where you have this hardened criminal who is, this, who is just this very, very sentimental guy. Um, so there's all sorts of you know, little objects like that, whether it be a knife, a book, a comb, tobacco pouch. The, these objects that otherwise would be largely disposable or, to, or, or totally utilitarian take on a new meaning during the war um, as they create connections between either people who you actually know and have connections with or a projection of intimacy with with the generic with you know generic people in the in the home front and and what about letters because they're also you know letters are they're cherished for their physicality, right? Because it's a connection to home, a connection to family members, but also their expressions of feelings, experiences, uh, et cetera. What role do these play for the soldier? So letters are probably the single most valued thing a soldier has that's other than, you know, I mean, they're in the genre of emotions. It's the single most valued, valued thing that a soldier has. Um, and the state from, you know, the beginning of the conflict is offering free mail back and forth from the front. Um, and these letters are physically very distinctive because there's the dramatic paper shortage in the Soviet Union means that they fold them into this triangular shape so that you don't have to have an envelope. Um, and these, these letters are, I would say in general, in, you know, they're interesting in the ways that they reflect the paper shortage in that you'll often get a letter that is torn out from a book and just kind of written across, written diagonally across where the text in the, in the book is. You'll often get trophy paper of various types, a wide variety of paper um, that is, you know, very different than a lot of the other regimes that, the, that, that you might, a lot of letters from soldiers and other regimes at the time, like the U.S. has this very high-tech V-mail system where they're photographing letters and then printing them as, as pictures when they get in the field um, because it's just easier with transatlantic or transpacific flight to do that. Um, so these letters themselves are a very interesting genre in that the state offers their soldiers and their soldiers' families free, basically free mail back and forth uh, but in exchange for that, they are censoring everything. And they're also using these letters to read soldiers' moods and get a sense of, of what's going on. And, you know, some soldiers are prosecuted and executed for things that they write in letters home. Um, some soldiers get a stern talking to for things that they write in letters home. And the system of censorship 
is based not only on the idea that sensitive information in terms of you know, military secrets should not go back and forth, but they're also, and increasingly as the war goes on, meant to craft soldiers' moods and families' moods. So, you know, in general, any sort of information about location at the beginning of the war is, is crossed out. Increasingly, they're finding, all right, if somebody wants to say that they were involved with a major military operation that were winning, they should do that because their families will be excited about that. And then increasingly, as they go abroad, people are not censoring, you know, I'm, I'm in Germany, I'm wherever. Um, increasingly, as interestingly as well, initially, as large areas of the Soviet Union are being liberated from the Third Reich, there is a tendency to censor descriptions of all the terrible things the Germans have done. And then they're like, no, 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 this is, it's good. This will make soldiers angry. This will motivate soldiers. So we're going to, we're going to encourage people to write these types of letters. However, anonymous letters decrying collaboration of Red Army soldiers, family members, we're going to censor that. And any information about the state persecution or prosecution of family members of the Soviet, of, of family members of Red Army soldiers, we're going to get rid of that. And then what's, what, what I found was really interesting is that by the middle of the war, they've set up a system by which, let's say, you know, Private Ivanov's family has been evacuated from their kolkhoz near, you know, somewhere in Ukraine into the Soviet hinterland, and they really, really need a cow. And they desperately need somebody to, to help them get established in this new kolkhoz, you know, somewhere in Uzbekistan or wherever. Um, that letter is going to be censored. But there is, and, and Ivanov is not going to hear about this if things are working properly. It doesn't, oftentimes it doesn't work completely properly. Uh, but there's a system that's set up so that the local military council and the local, um, you know, Rayon uh, Soviet or Sel Soviet is going to look into this as a priority thing. So the, it's all about keeping soldiers the right kind of angry, the right kind of sad, and, and the right kind of happy. I would imagine the apparatus for all of this is quite enormous. Do you have any sense of, you know, the 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 apparatus that went through soldiers' letters? And I mean, because I, I would imagine it's a lot of tedious physical labor of crossing things out. So it, I gather the impression um, that it is largely young women, like teenage teenage women and women in their early twenties, who are doing this. Um, and one of the, th they complain at various points in the war about their incompetence. Um, and they're for, for basically two reasons. Uh, one is that they tend to not be the most politically literate people. So they, because the most politically literate people have been mobilized into other, other branches of the military. So they tend they say there's 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 a example i have i can't remember if it's like 1943 or 1944 where they kind of just do this random do this random inspection of of a couple of different uh censoring posts and they find out that people don't know who's running the soviet state they they think that uh the soviet union is at war with japan the soviet union is not yet at war with japan they, you know, just don't know basic information, which is understandable when you understand how 
minimal the reach of the state was into a lot of areas. And also the fact that there's this massive paper shortage. Everything is being prioritized for the military. So they're probably not getting enough newspapers such to keep keep track of what's going on. The other thing that they complain about is just lack of infrastructure. So lack of things like ink and scissors. Um, they complain about people opening letters with chicken bones um, and that damaging letters. Or that they cross things out in a way that makes it obvious what is missing or even more ambiguous and potentially even more damaging than the original text itself. Um, so one of the things that I came across that was quite interesting is I came across a couple people who are non-Russians who eventually switch over to Russian for a couple reasons. One being that Russian is their day-to-day -day language and a couple of them just felt more comfortable in Russian already after several years in the army than they did, let's say, in Tatar. And the other is that they noticed that their letters were taking forever to get through because you need to find somebody near Leningrad who speaks, who can read Turkmen or Kazakh or Georgian or whatever. Um, and that means that these letters are going to take much longer. And, they, and they're, they're talking about the, the you know, the, the, the political apparatus of the, of the army is talking about this occasionally as well, that this is a real problem, that it taking a month or more for a letter to get to non-Russians who are often the most emotionally isolated people because they don't speak Russian, who often are, are terrified of the lack of news from home and who often don't understand basic things. Like there's a, there's a story from a um, political uh, journal of the red army from, I believe 42 or 43, where there's this Kazakh guy who had been very respected person in his community is now just a regular soldier and who doesn't know whether or not Kazakhstan is under German occupation. Um, and Kazakhstan, for those, you know, those of you who don't know Soviet geography, Kazakhstan is very, is quite far from the, the, the points to which the German army got. Um, so there's that lack of isolation and how that gets filled in with rumors or projections of the worst things possible is one of the reasons why the political apparatus of the Red Army is obsessed with letters and becomes also increasingly invested in providing reading material in a variety of languages to all of its soldiers. They, they have this dramatic and widespread system of, of frontline newspapers and agitators who are supposed to have uh, libraries of, of in, in various languages material like, you know, all of Stalin's speeches during the war, um, works by Tolstoy, Lermontov, Pushkin, so on and so forth. Like they're, they're very much invested in, in keeping people occupied and cultured, even in, even under these deadly conditions. Now, a lot of your story is about the stuff that soldiers bring to the battlefield. What did they take from it? So in the, Final chapter of the book, I talk at length about trophies and, you know, in the early portion of the war, there's not a lot of trophy taking going on as the, the Red Army is on the back foot. And some of the, I, the, the, very, the prelude of the book actually talks about some guys who were isolated and retreating back through Belarus and all the food and weapons and ammunition they could find was just whatever they could find on, on Germans, um, on dead Germans. So there's there's that sort of scrounging, which is normal for any army. Uh, once the Red Army is more successful, particularly around the time of the Battle of Stalingrad, 
there's a large number of watches um, that you know Germans had either bought or looted from 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 various populations in Europe that Red Army soldiers start treating like currency. Remember, anything that a Red Army soldier takes has to be either useful or highly emotionally valuable or highly valuable and highly portable. Watches fill this role absolutely perfectly. And there's all these accounts of soldiers trading watches for everything from boots to moonshine to apples uh, as the Red Army advances uh, westward from Stalingrad. <clears throat> the army itself is trying to maintain control over everything that is left on the battlefield. So there are these uh, trophy units that become increasingly large and sophisticated as the war goes on. Their, their mandate at the very beginning of the war is really just kind of evacuating scrap and, and damaged machinery and, dam and equipment that can be used. By the end of the war, they're, they're concerned with artwork. They have special units for, um, that are supposed to investigate any sort of new enemy technology, so on and so forth. But what happens that is particularly interesting, and it's a story that to a certain extent has been told before, but I don't think has really been examined and interpreted um, quite adequately, is at the, at, the, at the end of December 1945, Red Army soldiers are invited to send parcels home. And these parcels vary by weight depending on rank. These parcels are free. To send home if you're a, a, a soldier, if you're an officer, you have to pay per kilogram. And it is entirely unclear what these parcels are for. And there's this massive apparatus that's set up to clear these parcels. You're not allowed to send any written material with these parcels. You're not allowed to send any part of your uniform or rations with these parcels. And what this is, is this is an oblique but quite clear invitation to loot civilians in the third rank and there's a wide variety of, of things that soldiers take um, one of my favorite anecdotes is a comsomol organizer who takes a tuxedo and mails it home i mean the 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 irony in that i find you know quite quite interesting uh, one of the saddest stories is of a parrot who had clearly been owned by some high-level nazi officials who was kept around by a group of soldiers, but it kept repeating Heil Hitler until the soldiers couldn't take it anymore, so they killed him. Um, lots, of, lots of people are sending home civilian clothing, children's clothing, all sorts of stuff. And there's a variety of responses to this. Um, some people, I found there's a, a strong tendency, if you were from a dequilakized family, this was uncomfortable, and I have at least two people who I know who are from dequilakized families who write about refusing to send stuff home. But the way that I interpret this, and this is usually just interpreted as this kind of end of the war bacchanalia, but looking at propaganda around the same time, this draws on a couple of different and, and very powerful tropes in both Soviet and Russian culture. Um, from traditional Soviet jurisprudence, any sort of felony conviction usually carried with it the confiscation of property. So what's interesting is that they are marking their enemies as criminal. And the vast majority of them had suffered and their families had suffered at the hands of these very peoples. And I don't think anybody's going to argue that the Nazi regime was not a criminal regime. 
So they're just bringing, the Soviets are just bringing their jurisprudence apparatus onto this and compensating soldiers and their families for what the Germans had done. And they're finding looted objects from the Soviet Union, from Europe, from all over the world. Uh, so it's, it's a very easy claim to make. Another trope that this draws on is the traditional 19th century classic Russian literary trope of the, German, of the Germans as the most bourgeois people, bourgeois nation, as this kind of nation of automatons who are obsessed with stuff. And this works really, really well for the Soviets in that they can basically say, see, the Germans are the most bourgeois nations. Is, 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 sorry, excuse me. The Germans are the most bourgeois nation. Nazism is the, end, is the natural, logical endpoint of capitalism. And uh, we just defeated them. So we should compensate ourselves in much the same way that, we, that, that in 1918 we looted the looters, right? So this is this, these practices of expropriation that had been from the very beginning of the Soviet project, right? This more just redistribution from the wealthy to the poor suddenly takes on this really interesting national, um, national atomic, national hue. Wow, that that's incredibly fascinating. Um, and, and and finally, you know, you entered into this project wanting to deal with non-Russians and looking at the the army. Um, I'm kind of curious about how this transformed, like looking at it through objects, how it transformed your understanding of the war. How do you understand the war experience differently now after looking at it and through this through this lens? So I I understand the war as this very visceral, intimate event in a way that I didn't before doing this project. And I understand the nuts and bolts. I mean, we all know the war was transformative, right? I mean, it's obviously transformative. But the nuts and bolts of what this would have meant, or at least I can have a, I have somewhat of a projection and understanding of what this would have meant for individual people to suddenly go on this long, dramatic, and dangerous journey to interact very closely with people very different from themselves, and then to return to various corners of the Soviet Union with that knowledge, with perhaps having you know, some guy from Leningrad now having a very close friend in Tbilisi and maybe another very close friend somewhere in, in some tiny village in Bashkortostan, right? And understanding what the actual day-to-day -day of this transformation was, was really important to me. Uh, and understanding how that changes the relationship to the state and how many of the tropes that the state deploys both during and after the war how they might have purchase among a group of people who we might be apt to view as largely the victims of this regime, right? Because they are using these people's lives uh, and expending these people's lives in a way that few other regimes could, could do, yet many people feel very empowered by their experience of the war. That was Brandon Schechter, a visiting assistant professor of history at Columbia University. He's the author of The Stuff of Soldiers, a History of the Red Army in World War II Through Objects, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. 
The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>